After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Broadcaster and journalist Alistair Stewart has been a stalwart of ITN for over 30 years. First as a newscaster for Channel 4 News before becoming one of the leading anchors for the ITV National News, making him the longest-serving male news broadcaster in Britain. Beyond the news, Alistair Stewart has fronted factual entertainment series including Police Camera Action and GMTV. I caught up with ITN's main man to talk politics, broadcasting and his thoughts on an unparalleled career in television. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Alistair Stewart. Britain is just preparing for the second general election in two years. How difficult is it being the main anchor of ITN's election night coverage? Well, I'm not this year. Uh, the main anchor of, uh, of, of ITN's election coverage this year is, is Tom Bradby. And it's interesting because there are, there are two parts to the answer. One is, uh, how difficult is it getting to a point in your career when somebody else is doing the things that you used to do? And I was talking to a friend about that the other day. And I think however successful you've been in life and you're involved in script writing and making films and your journalism, you get to a point as you get older when other people start to come along and bite at your heels. And that's quite difficult to deal with emotionally and psychologically. Um, but I'm quite comfortable with it because I did it to somebody else. When I was a young man and Alistair Bennett used to be the great guy and then I started doing stuff. So I'm, I'm comfortable with it. The other answer to your question is that it's very, very difficult to remember that the most important thing about what we do within ITV News, and it's true with the BBC and CNN and Sky and anyone who's broadcasting in the UK, has to be impartial. If you pick up a newspaper, it'll tell you how to vote and why the other lot are crazy. Um, but within television and radio, we're governed by certain rules that say, no, you just report the facts and then you leave people to make their own minds up. And we all have very strongly held views about the big issues of the day. But that's the most important discipline. And I actually embrace it because it's a part of our democracy, letting people make up their own minds. So I'm very excited about it, but my role will be different. I'm doing daily programmes rather than the Overnight Results programme. So you've been a newscaster for ITM for over 30 years. In that time, you've experienced great highs and torrid lows from national disasters to evil dictators. What would you say is the most poignant event you've witnessed? I think the most poignant event, and it's a beautiful word, was probably the siege of the school in the Caucasus in a little town called Beslan, which I don't think anyone I'd ever met in my entire life had ever heard of. And I'm not sure that many had even heard of South Ossetia, which is one of the small nation states within the Caucasus region. And it was part of the great struggle between those who use Islam, in my view, as a, an excuse for 
their political uh, ambitions um, and those defending the great nation-state of Russia. And they seized a school hall, which was on the first day of school, and there were lots and lots of very young children turning up for their first day at school with their brothers and sisters, mums and dads, grandmas, that lovely Russian word, babushka, grandma. Um, and they were held captive for nearly two days. And in the end, special forces seized it and released the children. Uh, but 188 of those children died. And in all, I think nearly 300 people were killed. And we were covering that in the days of rolling news when ITV had a version of Sky and, and CNN. And I was on duty for nearly four hours and it literally broke my heart. The images of those young children and the heartbroken parents and the friends and survivors. I think also poignant but most significant uh, as a story that I covered was the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Um, when the great struggle between the East and the West, communism, capitalism, the Cold War and what have you, came to an end. What followed it was partly the struggle that Beslan signified, a different struggle, the Gulf War, um, Al-Qaeda, um, so-called Islamic State. But back in 1989, I'd grown up, my father was in the Royal Air Force, so I'd grown up with the Cold War and that great East-West struggle. And when the wall came down and the people who lived in East Berlin could come over to the West and the country was reunited and the other communist countries bit by bit fell, not by war but by democracy, I thought that was a phenomenal event uh, in modern history and was the most significant story I think I covered. But the most poignant, to use your lovely word, Josh, was without doubt Beslan. BBC and ITV have always differed in their approaches to programme making. If you were to briefly sum up those changes, what would they be? It's a very, very tough question. And politicians always say that when they're thinking of an answer. But I, I think I know the answer after many, many years. And it's got everything to do with style and very little to do with content. I think both sides treat the big stories of the day with equal respect but stylistically, we might be a bit more sassy, to use a, a, a good word. We might be a bit more populist, and I know that's got other connotations, um, like the tabloids, and I don't mean it in that sense. I just mean uh, what ordinary folk are talking about and caring about. Um, today's a, an interesting example. Here we are chatting uh, the day after a little 11-year-old girl was killed uh, at, at, at a theme park ride and also on the day that the general election is talking about education and about the Conservatives allegedly fiddling their expenses back in 2015 but the police said no there aren't grounds for prosecution or the Crown Prosecution Service said that. The BBC led on that and we led on uh, the little girl because we now know what her name is and we heard from her parents and her headmistress and we just felt at lunchtime that was, that was the story that more people would be talking about. The greatest newscaster I ever worked with, and I think the greatest newscaster there ever was, uh, was Sir Alistair Burnett. And his rule of thumb was that we should cover the issues that people will be talking about in the bus queue, in the works canteen, at school and what have you, um, rather than what we 
in our ivory tower think the lesser people should be worried about. And I think it's a good rule of thumb. It's not condescending. It's not avoiding the difficult stories. We do all of that as well. But it's basically saying, hey, do you know what's going on today? This is a real cracker of a story that we think you'll be passionately engaged in. And I think the BBC sometimes miss a trick with that. I think they're a little bit more predictable. And I think we're sometimes slightly off the wall. And uh, I, I quite like that. From a visual point of view, what impact do you think a dual presenting team has on the viewer as opposed to a lone new newscaster? And I'm not sure that it's it's such a trouble about what it looks like. I'll tell you the truth. One of the main reasons that it developed was to deal with breaking stories. So that if while you're on air, something happens, then you can still deal with it. And I've done a couple of events when the... Uh, Lockerbie disaster uh, happened all those years ago and, and the bomb went off in the Pan Am jumbo jet. I was doing it with Sandy Gall. And what happens is that, that while Sandy was speaking and was either making it up from the notes that he was reading or had a script that the producers had written for him, I was looking up everything else and being told what was going to happen next and who we were going to be talking to and where he or she was. And then when Sandy finished, then I would do that and Sandy would start doing the same thing. So it kind of gives you, it's a double-barreled shotgun approach. You've got, you've got someone to work with and you've got a newscaster who's speaking and another one who becomes a kind of researcher, producer. And I think that that can be very, very effective. I mean, we now do single presenting on the News at 10 with Tom and that, that's absolutely fine. Uh, and that's the pattern that we've moved to. But I think we we may find when those big breaking stories happen that sometimes we'll sit back and wish that we'd stuck with two. Um, it also, funnily enough, one other little thing, and you, you your question mentioned at the beginning about the what the viewers make of it, the presentation of it. It also, in the old days, used to give you that brilliant chance of having a man and a woman reading the news. Um, and gender balance, uh, I think, is important. I genuinely do. I mean, we employ very good women in the past. We've we've employed them going right back to uh, Selena Scott uh, and Julie Etchingham is now with us. And we also uh, ha have worked alongside uh, terrific people in the past like Carol Barnes. And they were only ever newscasters because they were very good journalists. They happened to be women. But it was quite nice saying, you know, here's, here's a bloke doing his bit and here's a woman doing her bit. And I, I, I quite like that as well. Because I don't think news is simply something for men in grey suits, and in my case, with grey hair. <laughs> What's still the thrill of live TV for you? The thrill of television news is that literally no day is the same. Um, I never have to go to work thinking I've got to sell another 10 insurance policies today or hang another 10 doors on a motor car out in Dagenham. Um, I always know that when I go in... Uh, whatever I heard last thing last night, which was Mr. Trump and uh, sacking Mr. Comey, the FBI director, that there'll be developments on that. Um, there'll be other stories that I had no idea were going to happen. Um, uh, and, and that's very, very exciting. I think also the thrill of it, to be more specific in answer to your question, is the thrill of the responsibility of millions of people, literally over the week, saying, oh, it's half past one, or, oh, it's half past six, and I'm going to listen to that Alistair Stewart tell me what's been happening in the last 12 hours. 
And if you sit down quietly on your own and think about that, it is a terrifying responsibility. But it's also a great thrill. You know, it's like Lewis Hamilton must feel when he sits down behind the wheel of his Mercedes motor car. Um, you know, someone's trusted me with this extraordinary responsibility and this extraordinary bit of kit, and I better get it right. So I still get an absolute buzz that every day is different. And I get a phenomenal surge from thinking they trust me, they believe me, and I better get it right. In terms of icons of political journalism, Britain has had more than its fair share. I'm thinking about Robin Day, Alastair Burnett and Richard Dimbleby. How important were these figures on the direction of broadcast journalism? Absolutely crucial. You're spot on and that's a very, very good list. I mean, Richard uh, was a great anchor man and sat there with his suit and sometimes even a bow tie, although that was more Robin's thing. But also he was the first reporter, not newscaster or anchor man, but reporter into Beslan, the concentration camp at the end of the Second World War. And here we are in 2017. And what he reported on in 1945 is still worth listening to because it is a master at work. It's moving, it's reflective, it's balanced, it's powerful. And he used the potency of the pause and the strength of the silence. It wasn't just wall-to-wall words. He was an absolute genius. Robin Day, I'm glad he's on your list, because Robin was the first one who said, we don't just go up to senior politicians and say, excuse me, Minister, may I ask you how you're feeling about so-and-so? He confronted the Japanese trade minister, who'd just arrived for a big set of talks in London, and said, why is your country copying our ball bearings and putting our people out of work? And the Japanese trade minister looked as if someone had told him to go in the corner and commit suicide. It was an amazing point, a breakthrough point in how television journalism is done. And Burnett, as I said to you earlier, was a very, very dear friend. I was one of the two speakers at his memorial service with my other dear friend, uh, Andrew Neal, um, who worked with him at The Economist, and I worked with him at ITV News for years and years. He was first and foremost a gentleman. He wasn't uh, an egotist. He wasn't some vanity superstar. In fact, he always said, never forget that it's the news that's the star, not the person reading it out. His work rate was phenomenal. He never went into the studio without knowing everything that you would want to know about a budget, about a general election, about whatever it might be. He respected his colleagues. He was very kind and very supportive. He respected young people like me on the way up, but if we put a foot wrong, he'd tell you very gently and very quietly. Um, and also, he knew as much about football, particularly Partick Thistle, that was his club, but he knew as much about football as he did about politics. Because again, it was his great belief that we're there to serve ordinary people. And he didn't mean that as condescendingly ordinary. He talked about the plain folk, just ordinary men and women going about their daily business trying to make a living, trying to survive. We weren't doing a programme that was just for really clever people who all went to Oxford and Cambridge. We were doing it right across the spectrum. And so I think, as I say, David set standards as a reporter-presenter, Robin set standards as a presenter-interviewer, and Alistair just wrote the textbook on it. Um, they're great. And there have, been, there have been many since, but those three, I would say, were, were brilliant. There's one other I'd just add to the list, because it's quite amusing, is Christopher Chataway, who was one of the first ITV News readers, who was also an MP and a junior minister and was one of the team who helped break the four-minute mile barrier. So that's not a bad CV, is it? 
Beyond the news, for 15 years you fronted ITV's police camera action. How do you think this show set the benchmark for fly-on-the-wall action programmes, which we see quite a lot of today? We do, and I think a lot of them have been, been a bit downhill since then. I mean, <laughs> I, I enjoyed doing it. <clears throat> and the, we found a we found a programme that a police officer had presented, and the clips were just amazing. <clears throat> but his presentation style was a, was a bit sort of um, stultified. Um, and he was a brilliant policeman, and, and I wouldn't be a very good policeman, but I, my presentation style was maybe a, a bit more accessible. Uh, and we worked very closely with the police because we couldn't make the programme without them giving us the clips. And our driver, no pun intended, was always, are people going to learn something from this as well as be entertained? So here's a crazy thing that somebody's done. Oh, look at what he's just done. He's crying up. But watching it, you'll think, blimey, I'm never going to do that. And so I think it had some merit. And I think nowadays, I mean, we don't do it anymore because we think it ran its time. Um, but but I think nowadays, sometimes it's just the crash, crash, crash stuff. And, and, and it's pure entertainment. So I think as a reality programme, it was it was honourable. And it, it did phenomenal business for, for, as you say, the best part of a decade. But I think it's had its day. You also occupied a significant place on the famous GMTV sofa when you fronted the Sunday morning politics slot from 95 to 2001. Do you think GMTV is missed by the British public? I think that... I'm pausing to think how to put this without upsetting anybody. <clears throat> I think what we're missing is is that Sunday morning programme on breakfast television. What we've got in its place is Robert Peston doing the main ITV network one. And what we used to have was the Weekend World programme that, David, uh, that um, Jonathan Dimbleby did... Um, and Matthew Paris did, and various other people. And there was something, it goes back to my thing about news for ordinary folk. And what we tried to do on that Sunday morning programme, the Sunday programme, um, uh, was, was to make politics accessible to ordinary folk again. And I think, I mean, I, I watch Peston, and I really genuinely enjoy it. I think it's fantastic. But, but I'm a junkie, I'm an anorak. And, and I think the same is true with Andrew Marr's programme. And, and Good Morning Britain uh, is a good programme. And I think that philosophy applied to politics might be worth a try again. Because ordinary folk, go back to Burnett's point about, you know, just the plain folk, it's quite a job to get them interested in politics. And if you have very complicated, very detailed uh, interviewing... Sometimes you're not just getting the basic stuff that people are worried about. You're crunching numbers and quoting things where people have changed their mind. All of that's really important. Don't get me wrong, that really does matter. But you sometimes want an interview where it's just about somebody who's concerned about how their kids are going to cope at school. And what are the basic choices that are on offer? You know, what's the difference between what the Tories, the Liberal Democrats or Labour would do about my school? That's what I want to know. And that's what we used to try and do uh, with the Sunday programme. So I kind of miss that, and it would be nice to see it again. I don't want Peston to stop, and I certainly don't want Andy Marr to stop either, because they're, they're great, but it would be nice if we could find somewhere in the slot, because we were very early. We were on about 7 o'clock in the morning, if I remember rightly. Um, so you could still find a space for it, even though it is a very crowded agenda, because you've got John Pienaar on Radio 5, who's brilliant, and you've got Andrew Neil later on at lunchtime on BBC as well. So it's quite crowded, but it would be nice to have a programme that pitched itself directly at that middle market. That would be my view. 
Looking back over your career, what's your proudest achievement? Oh, Berlin, undoubtedly. Um, and we talked a little bit about it before, but, but let me add something to it I mentioned in passing. I went to school, uh, Catholic boarding school. My father was a middle-ranking senior officer in the Royal Air Force. Uh, it was a very conservative background with a little C, um, because being a serving officer, he didn't have any public politics. He had them when he retired because he served the Queen, not the Prime Minister. Uh, <clears throat> and then as I went to university, I became a bit of a lefty and um, not quite a band the bomber, but I was more on that side of things. And my dad and I used to have wonderfully constructive arguments about world peace and, and the bomb and what have you. And I felt the world would be at a place without it. And he felt the world was a safer place with it. And as long as both sides had it, they wouldn't use them, but they would eventually sort their differences out. And that's what he was all about. That was his career. And I adored my father, absolutely worshipped him. He was one of the cleverest, nicest, loveliest men I, I ever knew. He was my dad, so I'm slightly biased. But, you know, some people aren't that lucky. They look back on their childhood and think, hmm, they were, they were a bit odd or whatever. But I have no doubts about that at all. I was, I was blessed, as indeed was my brother. And I remember standing in Berlin in 1989 thinking to myself, the old bugger was right. <coughs> Here we are. We've just seen the end of communism, the end of the Cold War. And there hasn't been a world war. There were many souls who lost their lives trying to escape from the East to the West. And we remembered and honoured them at the time. But from 1945 to 1989, there hadn't been a global struggle. And I genuinely believe to this day the existence of nuclear weapons was a part of that. Dad was right. But I was so pleased to stand there in, in 89 and think we can, now make a, we can now make a decent start of a better world. Uh, and then Al-Qaeda and IS came along. So, there you go. What's next for Alistair Stewart? Oh, catching a train back down to Hampshire. Um, I genuinely don't know. And, and, and uh, that's the second time I've not evaded your question, but I've, I've been straight in saying, I don't know. Um, 65 next month. Uh, but in, in my trade, you, you keep going as long as they want you. And when they don't want you, it's all done short and sharp and very pleasantly. So I don't know whether it's this year, next year or, or whenever. I'd love to keep doing it for that very simple reason I gave you earlier. And that is every day is different. Every day is rewarding. Every day is exciting. You still make mistakes. You still learn tricks and what have you. When it comes to an end, I'm not one of these people who would sit back and say, oh, well, then I'd like to spend my time making documentaries and what have you. No, I mean... Daily news is very different to documentaries and the idea of committing weeks on end to making a 30-minute film uh, does not have the appeal for me that I know it does for other people. The thing I probably love most and don't do enough of in my business is actual writing. Um, I love writing uh, and I did when I was at school doing GCSE, O-level as it was called in those days, English and A-level. I did economics at university but A-level English was probably my favourite moment of study, reading great literature and writing. And I'd quite like to have a go at doing some writing. Uh, in an ideal world, I guess, maybe writing a column for one of the Sunday papers so I could suddenly stop all of the impartiality that I love at the moment because I don't work. You know, when it happens, I will no longer work for ITN. I'll be just Alistair Stewart. And to be able to then say, look, I'll tell you what I really think about the Conservatives, the Labour Party education policy, health, um, care, all of those issues that, that you and I have talked about, Josh. 
but really saying what I think from the heart, but writing it beautifully, hopefully, and in a way that people would want to read. Um, and I look at the work that people like Janan Ganesh write in the Financial Times and John Rental uh, in The Independent, um, Philip Collins in The Times, um, I would cite as three very good examples. You just read their pieces, you learn so much, but they teach you in a beautifully elegant way. And that's quite an ambition. And I guess that would be my ambition. But for the time being, I'd like to keep going a bit longer if I can. <laughs>a big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another beyond the title interview if you like this why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy don't forget to like our facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what i do thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another beyond the title interview